0: Two weeks ago, uh, before I went on vacation, we were in Isaiah. Uh, we were looking at chapters 24 and, and 26. In those passages, we saw the two cities, the city of, of desolation and, and the city of salvation, the city of man and the city of God. And, and we recognize that, that those two cities were, were real spiritually, like they exist spiritually, but they were not physical, the city of God, the kingdom of God, is not some, some spot we can we can find on a map. It's the location of your heart, your belief. It is the indication of who you are putting your faith in, your hope in, your trust in. And so while last time we discussed the spiritual, today our text responds to the realities of the physical. In order to grasp fully the, the context into which our text is, is speaking... Let us read the preceding verses. Isaiah is speaking to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah has just shown some men from Babylon, from Assyria, all of the treasures that his kingdom holds. He has betrayed the strength and the jewels of his country to foreigners. We read Isaiah 39 verses 5 to 8. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. In response to his failures before God and as a king of his people, Isaiah prophesies from the Lord against Hezekiah. He tells of how the people of Israel will be taken into Babylon, where they will be slaves, where the king's own descendants will serve as eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is terrible. This, this is a stinking disgrace. This should be abhorrent to Hezekiah. He should be freaking out. This should lead to Hezekiah's repentance. Instead, how does Hezekiah respond? At least I will be safe, he thinks to himself. At least there will be safety in my lifetime. He's not concerned about the future of the people. He's not worried about where this path is going. He's not worried about the consequences of his actions and the state of his heart. He's comfortable. He knows that this will happen to, to other people, to somebody else, just not him. And, and so he is at peace. And Isaiah's prophecy comes true. Hezekiah dies, Babylon invades, and, and the people are taken to live lives of slavery and exile in a foreign land. So now in, in Babylonian exile, God's people are defeated, they're bitter, they're disillusioned. In fact, they think that God has failed them. For that's what we typically do, right? When, when things seem out of our control and we can't figure out why something is happening in the world around us or, or to us personally, When we have no control over the situation that we find ourselves in, we turn our eyes to the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, and we blame Him. Just like the Jews in Babylonian exile, we blame God for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. God is the great healer, we think. Why didn't He just stop this coronavirus? Look at the damage that it has done to the world and society. Look at the death tally. Look at the economic destruction. Why Why did he let this happen? God loves justice, we know. So why is there so much injustice in the world today? God created every human being in his own image with equal worth and beauty in his own eyes. We understand this. We grasp this. We read this in the Word. Yet, why is there racism? Why is there so much racial tension in our world? We wonder. The Bible says that God clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air even though they don't work for it and that he loves us even more than these and and that we should not worry about where our next meal will come from or where we will get the clothes that we need. And yet there are people homeless and starving all over the world. People face economic hardship constantly. Why? Was God teasing? Why would he be so cruel And, and why Isn't he doing anything to fix it? No matter who wins the election this November, there will be people who feel that God abandoned them, that he made a mistake by allowing the other side to win, and they will blame God for the failings of whichever administration claims the Oval Office for the next four years. How long, Lord, we sang in question this morning, Mario read from Psalm 42 where the psalmist says, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? This is our culture. This is our nature. It's what we do. We, We struggle to accept consequences of actions here on earth. We get angry at the things that we feel like we have no control over. And so we throw blame the one place we feel justified doing so at the feet of the one who has the power to stop the injustice, the consequence, the sickness, whatever it is that is afflicting us, we blame God. We may not be Israel in exile in Babylon, but we can each think of a time where we wondered why God was letting us go through a particular hardship. We can each think of a time we blamed God for what was going on in our lives or in the world around us. We can each think of a time when we felt abandoned by God in a time of need. Though we may focus on a singular time, we know that this isn't exactly accurate either. Because we live in a broken world, because hardship is part of the Christian walk, there will continue to be times when we feel justified in our anger at God. There will continue to be times when we feel abandoned by God. And it is into such times that our text this morning speaks. We read the word of the Lord this morning from Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 to 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain will be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Isaiah 40 begins uh, a new major section of this this book. And we're going to spend a few weeks in this section. Isaiah is no longer solely addressing Judah in his own day. He is being projected by the Holy Spirit out into the future, like the Apostle John in, in the Revelation. He is looking into his uh, I don't know, prophetic crystal ball, so to speak, seeing a, a future day and declaring the gospel to the Jews languishing in the Babylonian exile. He is saying to them and to us, He's saying, God has not abandoned you. Your best days are still ahead of you. God has a purpose of grace for you better than ever. And he is coming to save you. Believe it. And let this hope fill your sails. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. There have been many times that I have needed to hear these words. When I was younger and and picked on for being incredibly small and, and wondering if I'd ever outgrow the teasing. When I got kicked off a missions team, not because of some moral failing, but because I was saddled with the results of poor leadership. In 2008, in the heart of the recession, when I moved back into my parents' house, married and with a child and no job prospects in sight, feeling like a failure as a husband and a father. When we found out about the genetic abnormality in my daughter and that I would almost certainly never hold her living form. And then again, when she was stillborn at 21 weeks. This is but a brief glimpse into some periods of my life that I have needed to hear these words of comfort from my God. There's a wonderful promise in the words of our text this morning. We are promised that there is an end to the disciplines of God. We are promised that faith is not all struggle it is also release and hope and new beginnings we are told that God's deepest intention towards us is comfort in our anger and our frustration we we lash out at God We, we blame him for our current circumstances and for his part what does God do he comes down to comfort us He comes down with a promise, with hope that doesn't depend on us, but only on himself. And that is where true comfort lies. It lies in God's display of his love for us. It lies in the truth that God loves us so much, wanted relationship with us so much, desires to comfort us so much that he sent his son Jesus to bridge the gap between us and God, to bring us into the personal shelter of the embrace of the God of all comfort. Jesus did this by taking our place. As sinful people, we could not be in relationship with a perfect God. Our sin needed to be atoned for. Our debt needed to be paid. And we could not do it. How, how can a dirty rag become clean unless someone washes it? And that is exactly what happened. Jesus came down from heaven, becoming man, lived a pure and, and sinless life, and then gave us his clean and perfect clothes and took our dirty, sinful rags. He took our rags to the cross where he paid for them with his death, and then he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death. And through his death and resurrection and the faith that we have been given, we have been reconciled to God. We have been brought into his loving and comfortable embrace. All this was done not because we earned it through good behavior or good intentions, but simply because God loved us so much, despite how we have continued to sin against Him. So no, rest in the reality that the hardship you are facing, the situation that you are in that causes you to long for comfort is not God punishing you for your sin. Though there are still consequences of sin that we must endure here on earth. If you cheat on a test, you're going to get a failing grade. If you speed, you get a ticket. If you litter, there's a fine, etc., right? Like, we, we, we understand that there are consequences, physical consequences for, for the sin that we commit here on earth. But the sickness, the economic struggle, the unfairness of life, the injustice in the world are not punishment for sin. For Jesus took the punishment for sin fully on the cross. The hardships that you face are not a reflection of how God feels about you. The hardships that you face are not a reflection of how God feels about you. The hardships that we face are a result of the broken world that we live in. The aftershocks of the fall. The whole earth is groaning to be remade new. And it will be one day. But until that day, we live in its brokenness. And God does allow that brokenness, these hardships to happen to us. But the intent is not to punish us, but to draw us closer to him, to shape us into the people he wants us to be, so that we will be able to relate to the hurting around us that he longs for us to proclaim the good news of the gospel to. It is so important as Christians to remember that our relationship with God is not dictated by our sin. How could it be otherwise? If the focus of Christianity were our sins, how much we fail, our future would be lost. There would be no hope, for failing is something that we continually do, despite our best efforts and intentions. No. The focus of Christianity is not on our sins, but in fact the focus of Christianity is all centered on the saving grace of God. He overrules our stupidity with his own absolute pardon through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Do we sin? Yes. Do we suffer for it? Yes. Is that where God leaves us? No. No, he does not. Christianity is not fundamentally challenged. It is not, at its core, a push to live a perfectly moral life, to be better, to be worthy of the love that is given us. No, Christianity is fundamentally assurance. Assurance of the truth that no matter how we have failed in living perfectly moral lives, God still loves us and Jesus still died for us and his death covers the depths of our immorality. And it is out of this realization, the recognition of all that Christ has done that our desire to do good works flows from. We want to do, we strive to do the right thing, the moral thing, the thing that God wants us to do, not because we are trying to earn God's love or keep his favor, but because we are so very thankful for it. We don't do it out of fear, but out of a response of love, the love that God has, has poured out over us already, reflected back at him by the broken mirrors that we are. This is the promise that we find here in Isaiah 40. Now critics struggle with the book of Isaiah for a few reasons, but but partially because of texts like our text this morning. Isaiah was was taken into captivity in Babylon. How could he look into the future and know how things were going to turn out? How, How could he proclaim the comfort to come in the midst of the hardship that they were experiencing? How could he know? Critics argue that it it had to be someone else, right? Like, that's what makes sense to us. It had to be someone who had experienced it, who knew. But the rest of the Bible doesn't allow for the reaction of the critics. Jesus and his disciples often quote from Isaiah, and they attribute it all to Isaiah. The book of Isaiah itself only names one author, and scrolls have been recovered, and they do not separate the, the, the book, the whole book, into three separate books, But keep it as one text, one book, by one author. No, Isaiah is the author, the single author of the book. And God gave him a vision of hope in the future. Hope that lasts, that spreads beyond just the Babylonian exile. The hope that we have in the word of our God is not about health, justice, comfort, freedom, and safety in this life. But in the life to come. And as we savor, as we rest in the comfort of His promises, He strengthens us for what comes while we wait. And church, friends, as we wait, rest in the comfort of God's promises. His promise that Jesus made full satisfaction for all of your sins. That the hardship of today will pass. It came to pass. And though we sing songs like we sang this morning, wondering how long, Lord, we can rest in his strength for the wait and trust fully in his promised return and all that comes with it. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. His promises will not fade no matter how much we shine the light of scrutiny on them. They will never diminish. They do not decay with time. Rest in the promises made to you by the God of all comfort. As we wait, church, as we rest in the promises, I just want to reiterate one more time that God has not abandoned you. Your best days are still ahead. God has a purpose of grace for you that is better than ever. He is coming to save you. Believe it. Rest in the comfort of this truth and let this hope fill your sails. What a wonderful, fantastic, loving, gracious, and powerful God we serve. Amen.